Okay, hey, how's it going? My name is Brian. Uh, I'm one of the pastors here. If I haven't met you yet, really, really excited and thankful that you're here. Um, it really is a privilege that you're here. I know you can be doing a lot of different things, and you're here with us, so it really means a lot to us. Uh, well, one of the things I've loved about starting our church in this neighborhood is that many of us live in this neighborhood. And uh, for a while, I was always trying to uh, reclaim what I experienced in college. If any of you went to a large university, you know what it's like to bump into people and just go grab coffee spontaneously. And I'd moved to the suburbs after college and wasn't experiencing that anymore. And so one of my dreams was, when we start this church in this neighborhood, we live close to each other, we do life together, and we're bumping into each other. And that happened this week. And whenever that happens, I'm like, my dreams are coming true. We actually bumped into Teresa, who's running the slides for us. Uh, Andy and I were working at Coffee at the Point on Monday, and we bumped into Teresa, and she walks in during her lunch break. And uh, she, you know, we get into this conversation, and she says to me, you know, it's getting kind of full in here, like, especially if you were here last week. I mean, it's just, just packed out. Like, I heard, you know, are you looking for new space? Are you not looking for new space? I was like, okay, well, I guess the cat's out of the bag. We are looking for new space, but, I mean, there's nothing imminent. But if you know what I'm about to teach on for the next three weeks, I don't think we're going to have a space problem because it's probably going to clear out. Because I'm going to be teaching on some really unpopular stuff. See, I was listening this week, and John Stott, many of you have heard of him, maybe you haven't heard of him, uh, he, he actually just recently died. He said this, he said, one of the major reasons that people should teach through books of the Bible is that it forces us to teach passages that cowards choose to ignore. And so tonight, we're going to start getting into some really difficult stuff. I'm just going to tell you what we're going to get into. Tonight, we're going to get into the issue of the exclusivity of Christ. The question of, is there one way to get to heaven? Next week, next week, we're going to get into gender issues within the church. And for the three of you that are still here three weeks from now, we will get into the issue of the fact that people within the church are a people underneath authority. Now, some of you, yeah, whew, like really excited for this. Now, now, here's the thing. Some of you have probably already made up your mind not to come back next week. You, you've already thought to yourself, people don't think like that anymore. Uh, maybe that, maybe that old-fashioned thinking could fly 2,000 years ago, but we're enlightened now. We're more, edu- we're more educated now. People don't think like that anymore. And I would just say that you're wrong. You're wrong because the message of Christianity has been offensive for 2,000 years. Actually, if you even look, after Paul gets gets done hitting on these, these three very controversial, very uh, offensive topics. You know what he says? First Timothy 4, verse 1, he says this. He says, some of you are going to depart from the faith. Some of you are going to depart from the faith. And here's the thing that's important. If you've already made up your mind not to come back next week, or it's really hanging in the balance, I would say this. Something greater is at stake than just philosophical preferences, uh, just preferences about the church. What Paul is saying is, is eternity, the faith and the grace of Christ that has been extended to you is what is hanging in the balance, not just a matter of personal preference. And so in light of all that, in light of the fact that Paul says that some of you will be eager to depart from the faith, in light of the fact that something so substantial hangs in the balance, here's what I want to do before we start. And to preface these next three very offensive weeks is this. I want to plea with you. I want to plea with you in two ways. The first is this. The first is, I want to plea with you to know, if this is your first time here, if you've only been here for a few weeks, this is a safe place to ask questions. And I mean that with the utmost sincerity. I understand the church doesn't have the best reputation with skeptics and outsiders. And I understand you probably saw the movie The Da Vinci Code, where the church, one question, hired an albino monk to go kill people. But we don't have any albino monks. I've been doing CrossFit so I can lay a smack down if I need to. But here's the thing. 
This is a safe place. You can ask questions, and I'll take you to coffee so you can ask questions. And I'll shut up the entire time so you can ask questions. You can ask whatever question you want, and you're welcome here, okay? Now, here, here, here's plea number two is this. Is that you wouldn't let this be you that Paul's talking about. He says that some will depart from the faith. Don't let that be you. Please don't let that be you. You have an amazing opportunity these next few weeks to make a decision about who is going to determine truth for you. And is it going to be the word of God that has proved itself intellectually viable for over 2,000 years? Or is it going to be you and your own common sense and what you saw on TV and what some smart professor said when you were in college? See, I'm not throwing stones here because before I became a Christian when I was 18, that was largely how I determined truth. It was the way I felt. It was what smart people said with some sort of authority. And it's what I saw in movies and on TV and what I heard on the radio. And I'll tell you something. That is not a pathway to life. That is a pathway to death and destruction. And so that's why I want to plead with you. Here's the other thing I want to say before we get started in the text is this. And something happened to me this week as I was getting ready because, you know, we're growing, we're, great, we're gaining traction, we have a lot of momentum, and it's like, man, do we really want to teach on something as, uh, as possibly disrupt, disruptive to that as the exclusivity of Christ or gender roles? And I would say, you know what, maybe Monday, Tuesday, I was sort of fearful of that, but what's happened to me is I so believe that God is more after your joy and after your good, more than you're after your own joy and your good, that life lies for you in this book. And if you follow this especially in the areas where it may sound, seem counterintuitive, especially in the areas where it may seem disruptive to the way you've been taught to understand and know the world, it is going to be for your joy and is going to be for your good more than you could ever imagine. So in light of all that, in light of all that, we are going to get in the text. Now here's how we're going to do the text. We're going to do things a little bit different tonight. Usually we go verse by verse. And we are going to sort of go verse by verse, but we're going to start with Paul's major point, which comes point two. Okay, so there's three points. Three points, but we're going to start with the second because it is the truth on which everything in this passage hangs. So I want you to imagine a central truth. We're going to call this the missionary truth. Okay, the missionary truth. And then on each of these, on this truth, it's going to be bookended by two implications about the way that we should live our lives. So here's kind of the main idea that we're going to go for tonight. Here's the main idea. The main idea is this, is that God calls every single person, Every single person, no matter your ethnicity, no matter your upbringing, no matter whatever your circumstances, every single man, woman, and child to be a Christian, okay? God calls every person to be a Christian, and God calls every Christian to be a missionary, all right? The main idea, God calls every person to be a Christian, every Christian to be a missionary. Now, let's look at the text. Here's the main idea that Paul's going to give on the front. Here's the missionary truth on which everything hangs, okay? This is very, very important, very, very offensive. It's this. Every person needs to be saved. Every person needs salvation. And yet there's one way for salvation, okay? Everybody needs salvation. There's only one way for salvation. Now let's look at the text. We're going to start at verse 3, okay? We're going to start in verse 3, and then we're going to hop back to verse 1. Verse 3. Paul says this, he says, This is good, and it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all people to be saved and to come to knowledge of the truth. So the very implication is, if, if God desires all people to be saved, then all people need to be saved. Okay? If God desires all people to be saved, he desires, he, all people need 
to be saved. Now, I understand saved is a very churchy churchy word. You imagine some guy in a suit yelling it from a pulpit. But it's a biblical word, and we need to understand what it means. This is what we've been talking about for a few weeks. What we talked about is how every single one of us, even though we are created for intimacy with God, even though we are created to follow God and to obey the rules that he has put on our life, every single one of us, has broken the law of God on our lives. And we have turned and we have gone our own way. And just like when you break the laws of the city or the state, you become an enemy of the city or the state. When you break the law of God, you become an enemy of God. And the consequences, the consequences when you say, I will go my own way, I'll have it my way, I will function as God in my own life. The consequences of when you cut yourself off, from the giver and the sustainer of every good thing, from the giver and the sustainer of life itself. The implications of that are sin, death, and hell. Okay? Every single one of you, myself included, have broken the law of God, and we need to be saved. We need to be rescued from the consequences of what we have done. Every single person needs to be saved. And the good news is, is even though we try to explain that away, even though we try to create all sorts of elaborate philosophical explanations for why man is basically good and not basically bad, why man doesn't need a savior, why you can save yourself, God, in the midst of all that, he is eager to save. He is more eager for your salvation than you are for your salvation. And he is eager, eager, eager to chase you down and to save you and to give you his grace. Okay? Everybody needs salvation. Now here's what Paul says, verse 5. For there is one God and there is one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. So Paul says everybody needs salvation and there's only one way to receive salvation. and It's through the man, the one man, Jesus Christ. Christ. Now, this is where it gets particularly unpopular, okay? I understand that, and I understand it's particularly popular in our culture right now to think that religion, maybe, maybe from a distance, seems very different, but once you get close, it seems the same. And, and basically what religion is is a body of teaching uh, that helps bad people be good enough for God, helps immoral people be moral enough for God. And so if you look at Islam, there's the uh, five pillars. If you look at Judaism, there's the law. If you look at the Buddha, he provides the eightfold path. And basically here, with, here is a body body of moral teaching, uh, they're fairly similar to one another, and they're all in pursuit of bad people becoming good people who are good enough to be able to reach up to God. And I would say here is exactly the major divergence from Christianity and every other world religion. It's this. It's that Christianity isn't primarily a body of teaching. Jesus isn't even primarily a teacher. He comes living the life you should have lived, dying the death you should have died, conquering the grave, conquering sin for you, conquering death for you, conquering Satan for you, doing exactly what you can't do on your own. Every single religion gives you a body of teaching to be good enough for God. And Christianity comes and says, you will never be good enough for God, but Jesus will be good enough for you. And by grace through faith, you can believe and have access to his forgiveness and his righteousness on your behalf. Christianity is totally unlike every other religion. Totally unlike. It's unbelievably exclusive if you take it for what Jesus actually taught it to be. And it's not saying then 
that every other religion doesn't have something you can learn from it. It doesn't mean it won't make you a better person. It just won't save you. It won't save you. Christianity alone can save you. Paul sums this up by saying, here's what you need. You need a mediator, and that mediator is Jesus. Now, here's the thing. When I think of mediator, you know what I think of? I think of when I worked in an office and the HR person who handled conflict resolution, right? I think of Toby from The Office. If any of you watch The Office, and I think particularly the episode where Pam is mad at Michael because Michael's dating Pam's mom, and she wants to hit Michael in the face. And she goes to Toby and asks, is it okay if I hit Michael? And, she's, and he's like, no, you can't hit Michael on company property. But if you go right over there, right outside that parking lot, you can hit him. And be sure to really plant that back leg when you do, so you can really hit them good. Paul's saying we need a mediator, but it's not a mediator like that. It's not a mediator like I've experienced. Yes, there are two parties who are opposing one another. But it's not two people who each share equal fault in which are trying to find an amicable resolution between the two of them. It's God, perfect, sinless, holy, and us. Not perfect, sinful, not holy. And there is an infinite divide between us. And, and Paul comes and he says this. He says that the God-man, Jesus Christ, fully God and fully man has come to bridge that infinite gap that we are totally incapable of bridging on our own. See, here's the thing. is only Jesus comes claiming he can do that, and if you study religion, only Jesus is the only one, Jesus is the only one who can do that. He's the only one who can do that. Now, here's the thing. If you're not with me, if you're pushing back, I understand. I've been there. I didn't grow up thinking this way. This was very counterintuitive to me. Everything in culture was telling me this was wrong. In fact, my first class in college, I went to the University of South Carolina, and my first class was Intro to Religious Studies. And it was taught by this man who had three advanced degrees from three different Ivy League institutions who was crazy smart and crazy compelling. And the very first day of class, he stands up and he says, many of you grew up in a conservative Christian environment and you think when you get to heaven, you will be the only ones there. But I come to tell you that you are wrong. And he went up to the whiteboard and he drew on the whiteboard an island. And he said, this island represents salvation. And many of you have been taught that the stream of Christianity is the only stream you can swim to get to God. And I come to tell you that there's a stream of Islam, there's a stream of Judaism, there's a stream for the Native American religions. And in the entire semester was him giving amazingly intelligent, compelling arguments for that. And I'm very new to my faith. I just became a Christian. I'm trying to wrap my mind around this. I'm seeing people in my class reject the faith that they grew up in and become universalists. And here we come to the final day of class for the final exam. And on the board, he's written our one essay question. We pull out our blue book. Anybody remember using blue books? Pull out our blue book. And here's what this professor wrote. He said this. He said, the first day of class, I gave an illustration of an island that represents salvation. Do you agree with me or not? Why or why not? You have two hours. I thought to myself, oh boy, like, this could go badly for me. <laughs> and so I started writing. And, and during this process, I was studying the claims of Christ. And I was studying how, how Jesus said in, in John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And nobody comes to the Father except through me. I was studying how it seemed like everybody throughout the entirety of Scripture is affirming this. And you have to do serious interpretive gymnastics in order to end up somewhere else in the way you read your Bible. And I wrote this. 
I said, Dr. Jones, you wrote on the first day of class an illustration of an island, and it was very, very compelling, but here's why I disagree. Because you told us I could swim for salvation. Here's the problem, is I can't swim. When I study humanity, when I study my experience, when I study what the Bible talks about, talking about the fallen human condition, I can't swim. I don't need floaties. I don't need Jesus in the back of a canoe helping me paddle my way to salvation. I can't swim. I'm dead. I need somebody to come, pick up my body, throw it over his shoulder, carry me the entire way to salvation, and resuscitate me to bring me from death to life. That's what I need. And every other religion is all about making bad people good, and Jesus comes to make dead people come to life. He's the only one who can do that, and he's the only one who claimed to do that. Now, here's the thing. If you still disagree with me, here's what I want to say. I want to say it's still a safe place, okay? I know I'm getting a little heated here, but it's still a safe place. I'll still take you to coffee, okay, if you you want to. It's still a safe place. But here's the thing. If you disagree, you have to have some sort of intellectually viable explanation beyond, I just don't like that, okay? You have to have some sort of intellectually viable explanation beyond that. Jesus deserves and warrants a greater response than that. Over 2,000 years, he has transformed lives. Over 2,000 years, he has changed lives all over the world. You can't just write him off because the culture tells you to. And here's what I would say. If you're wrestling with this, I'm going to pray for you right now. I know, we're not done yet. But I'm going to pray, okay? And if you want to give your life to Jesus, because he's the one man that can bring you from death to life, I'm going to pray for you right now. And then we're going to keep going, okay? I know this is weird. I know this is not normal, but it's where the Spirit's leading. So let's pray. God, I pray for anybody who doesn't know Jesus, who wants to know Jesus. And they, they would understand that while every other religion and every other belief system is about making bad people good and making immoral people moral, I pray that they would see Jesus as the exclusive hope to bring dead people to life. And that is our state. We are dead people walking. Redeem us and forgive us of our sin. We need a Savior. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Okay, so Paul says, everybody needs to be saved. And there's only one way to be saved, through Jesus. Now, that's the central truth. That's the missionary truth. Now, now, if you believe that, if you believe that, here are the implications that that should have on your life, okay? We're going to look at verse 1, and here's implication number 1. Implication number 1 is, is you should be characterized by having a heart for all people, okay? You should be characterized by having a heart for all people. Now, look at verse 1. First of all, then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people. All people. That means all. That means everybody. That means everybody. All people. Paul says first you should pray. Why pray? Why why if it's true that all people need a Savior, and there's only one way to have a Savior, that it's not go knock on doors, that it's not go on a mission trip. Why is that? Because you're not supposed to just think you can do this. This truth is supposed to floor you when you start thinking about your friends and your family who don't know the grace of Christ, when you start thinking about the 2.8 million people in this city, when you start thinking about the nearly 3 billion people in this globe who have never heard of the name of Jesus. This truth should floor you in your prayer life, should explode to ask God to do what only God can do. Your prayer life should explode. For all people. 
Now here's what Paul says. He says, all people, he's saying especially, verse 2, for kings and all who are in high positions. Now, that seems out of nowhere, doesn't it? Doesn't that seem out of nowhere? I mean, where did that come from, Paul? Here's what Paul's saying. He's saying, the church who believes this truth should be so characterized by praying for all people that their hearts should break, especially for those who seem least likely and least deserving of God's grace. Okay? The church's heart should break for all people, especially for those who are least likely and seem least deserving of God's grace. Because let me ask you a question. Who seems least likely to deserve God's grace? It's politicians, isn't it? It's politicians. And here's what Paul's saying. He's saying, if you in the church are characterized by criticizing the president more than praying for the president, you don't understand the robust nature of the grace of God. You don't. If you're more eager to criticize than pray, you don't understand what God has done for you. And here's the thing, you'll push back. And you'll say, well, you don't understand, I don't like his economic policy. And you don't understand, I don't like his stance on abortion. And you don't understand, I don't, I don't like his stance on gay marriage. And I would say, you have nothing on Paul. You have nothing on him. Because you know what, you know what the rulers that Paul was telling the church to pray for were doing? They were arresting the Christians and throwing them in the Colosseum so they could be eaten alive in front of spectators by wild animals. You you know what the Roman rulers were doing? They were arresting Christians and they were lighting them on fire while they were still alive so they could have illumination for their dinner parties. Don't bring that junk up in here with, like, political platforms. I understand that there's some verses in the Bible where it's been completely okay your entire life, not to keep this, that won't fly up in here, okay? We believe the entire Bible, not just the parts we like. Paul's saying that your heart should break for everybody. And and when you look at the least likely, when you look at the politician that you are eager to hate, you should remember the grace of God extended to you and that God has not turned you from a bad person to a good person, but from a dead person to a new creation. And that means everybody comes to the cross even. And you would implore God to save them. And you would believe God could save them. Why? Because they saved you. And if God can save somebody as jacked up as me and as jacked up as you, he can't save anybody. See, when you understand this truth, your priorities finally get in order. And you start submitting the non-essentials for the most important. Because you say, I want to do whatever it takes. Whatever it takes for the gospel to go out. Whatever it takes. Like, if it's true that all people need a Savior... And there's only one way through that Savior. And I'm an ambassador for him. I'm going to do whatever it takes to lay down what's non-essential. Right? Doesn't that make sense? I remember when I was in college. I understand I keep giving college illustrations, but it makes me feel young and relevant to the 90% of our church that's still in their early 20s. But I remember in college where the street preacher came on and he's talking about everything other than the gospel. He's talking about all the non-essentials and about the way people dress and the music people listen to and how that's going to equate salvation or damnation and how he's yelling at girls wearing shorts, telling them that they're going to hell because of their wardrobe. 
I remember going to him and saying, does this not seem like it's going bad for you when everybody hates you? Not just the non-Christians, but the Christians as well. He said to me, brother, the gospel and the cross is a stumbling block to those who are perishing. When I thought to myself, no, you being an idiot is a stumbling block to those who are perishing. If you really had a heart for all people, if you were really willing to do whatever it takes, you would lay down the non-essentials for the sake of the essential gospel message going forward. Now here's the thing. That's an easy illustration to laugh at because it seems so extreme. And you don't think it's you, but it is. Unless you're Jesus. We all prioritize non-essentials. We are all hurdles that people have to jump over to get to Christ. We are. We're major, major hurdles. And I mean, to go back to politics, I mean, some of us are so loud about our political convictions that we muffle out the beauty and the truth of the gospel. Some of us are so inflexible with our schedules and we only want to hang out with Christians in the church who make us feel comfortable, who won't ask us tough questions, who won't do things that make us feel uncomfortable, that it's impossible for us to have lasting, meaningful investments with anybody who doesn't sit in these walls. Some of us have such strong convictions about non-essential things, about the way people dress and the way people act and, and the movies people watch, that it makes, you impos- it, makes it impossible to have genuine relationships, genuine friendships with people outside of the church. And you need to ask yourself, what do you need to lay down for the gospel to explode within the sphere of influence that God has entrusted you with? What do you need to lay down? Jesus did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but laid it down so grace could be extended to sinners. If he can do that, what non-essential thing or things you need to lay lay down? Who do you need to repent to for being a major hurdle, for being a stumbling block, for people coming to know and love and follow Jesus? Okay, essential truth. Everybody needs to be saved, and there's one way to be saved. Implication number one for our life is that we should be characterized as being a people who have a heart. We have a, we have a heart for everyone. Now here's implication number two. So if this is true, we should be, the church should be full of missionary people, okay? The church should be full of missionary people. Now, now look at verse seven. For this I was appointed a preacher and an apostle. I am telling the truth, I am not lying. A teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. Now, now here's the thing, that, that probably doesn't particularly resonate with your life. But, but, but if we get beyond sort of the religious language that may be a little bit confusing, here is essentially what Paul is saying. He's saying because this truth is true, because everybody needs a Savior and there's only one way to be saved, because of that, my life had a singular focus. Okay, my life had a blazing laser focus. And it was this. It was that I gave my life away to getting the good news of Jesus to those who hadn't believed and to those who hadn't heard. Now, that probably seems obvious, but Paul could have done a lot of things. He's one of the most influential, most intelligent people in all of history. Not just church history, all of history. 
He was affluent. He was influential. He was educated. He could have done a lot of great things. And he said this, the most important thing, the lens through which I make the major decisions of my life is getting the gospel to people. Is getting the gospel to people. Now, now some of you have, have bought into this. A lot of you moved to the city, to be a missionary to the city. And just as somebody would uproot their life and, be a mi- and move to the Middle East to be a missionary to the Middle East and get a job to sustain you to be a missionary to the Middle East, a lot of you have uprooted your life, moved to urban Denver, Denver, Colorado. You're paid by somebody else, and you're full-time missionary to the city. And I'd say that's unbelievable. Some of you didn't move here with that sort of focus. Some of you moved here for a different purpose, maybe a promotion. And as you came here, you didn't think that way. But, but since you've been in the life of a church and as you've seen God's missionary call in your life, no matter whether or not you've been called into the ministry, you begin to gra- grab a hold of that vision as well. Some of you are exploring it for the very first time. And I would just say this. I would say don't lose it. Don't lose that focus. Don't, don't lose that decision making criteria, because here is going to be the tendency for you, is to have a one, two, three-year missionary experience, and then you go and live the life that you finally want to live. And Paul's saying, I gave my entire life away, from the moment I became a Christian to the moment I was executed for the Christian faith, for the cause of the gospel going forward. I want to put it very plainly. Here's the thing. The most important thing in your life is not career advancement. The most important thing in your life is not making as much money as possible. The most important thing in your life is not your personal happiness. Paul is saying the most important thing, the most important thing is the gospel going forward. That should be the criteria for the people you date, for the person you marry, for the jobs you take, for the places you move to. Every single major decision should be filtered through that lens. And here's the thing. I'm not even sorry for telling that to you. I'm not sorry. Because it's for your joy. You're not sacrificing. God is after your joy in a way you can never be after your own joy. And yes, careers aren't bad. Yes, education isn't bad. Yes, getting married isn't bad. But they are not meant to be the ultimate thing in your life. They are not meant to satisfy you. We say this all the time, but getting the gospel out, being a missionary for Jesus, is the great cause to which you are meant to give your life to, and it's the great cause for which your heart was wired. And you will yearn for some great cause to give your life to until you give your life away to that. Here's the thing, we won't just do that as individuals, we do that as a church too. My job description, these first seven months for us, has been saying no and not right now to a lot of good ideas. It's been saying no and not right now. Why? Because the enemy of greatness for any individual life and any institution, whether it's the church or a corporation or whatever, the enemy of greatness is good ideas. It is. It's good ideas that seem good, and they just bog you down, and they keep you from doing the most important thing. And we will relentlessly pursue the most important things. Relentlessly. And I will say no over and over and over again if it gets in the way of us making followers of Jesus who make more followers of Jesus. The natural drift of the church is to go away from this. 
That's the natural drift. You have to realize, if, you're, if we don't think, if you don't think naturally about this, if you don't think intentionally about this, if you're not forward-thinking about this, you will not do this. Our church will be characterized by Christians who hang out with each other all the time, and we will die. I remember experiencing this over and over and over again. In 2010, when I traveled all over, fundraising to help get our church jump-started, I go to these churches, and their money is totally wrapped up in themselves. And I remember they would say things to me like, we're really good at taking care of ourselves. We're just not really good at reaching out to others. And I remember thinking to myself, that's dumb. That's like a football team saying, yeah, we have great plays and a fantastic coaching staff. We just don't win any games. The point is to win games. And for the church, the point is to make disciples. The currency of success for football is winning games. The currency for success for the church is making followers of Jesus who make more followers of Jesus. And we will relentlessly pursue that. Relentlessly pursue that. That's what we'll be about. Andy, Andy made a really good point. He said we want to do a few things well. We want to do a few things well. You've heard us say this. We have, we have a phrase we drop all the time around here. We want to be Ruth Chris and not... Golden Corral, right? We want to be Roost Chris and not Golden Corral. Why? Because Golden Corral does a lot, and they do none of it well. And Roost Chris does a few things, and they do those few things with excellence. And that's going to be us. We're going to do a few things absolutely excellent. And one of those things will be making disciples of Jesus who makes more disciples of Jesus. Why? Because believe it or not, I actually believe what's true in here. I actually believe that everybody needs to be saved. And there's only one way to be saved. And to end up anywhere else, if you believe the Bible remotely, takes serious interpretive gymnastics. And to be honest, to be honest, you just have to read the Bible. You want to read the Bible. Now, in conclusion, here's what I want to say. If you're a follower of Jesus, examine your life. Because, because there's stated beliefs and there's actual beliefs. And what you do re- reflects what you actually believe. And yeah, you may preach exclusivity with your mouth, but you may live universalism with your life. And are you actually characterized by having a heart for all people? Are you actually characterized by a missionary lifestyle? And if you're not, you need to repent and you need to reorient your life. You need to plug into the church. You need to get connected to people within this body who are doing that well, who you admire. And you just need to go to them and say, can you show me how to do that well? Show me. That's that's discipleship and action. Show me. Show me how to follow Jesus. Show me how to help other people follow Jesus. Show me. And here's what I would say. I would say, I'd say, if you're not a follower of Jesus, if you still disagree with me here, I, I would say you, have, I'd say you have three options. I thought a lot about you this week, okay? I thought a lot about you. And here's what I think your three options are. I think, I think the first is totally reject and not come back. And I would say, that's okay, but, but have, have a substantial reason for doing that. Again, like I said already, have something more substantial than just, I don't like it. Than just, it'll make me unpopular to believe that. Well, well, I heard somebody who had a PhD tell me differently. Have a reason for rejecting it. I'd say the second option is you can, you can pursue it. You, you can explore it. You can, you can check out what Christianity is all about. And you can understand these truth claims in the context of community with people who will let you ask difficult questions, with people who will be honest with you, who people will just dialogue openly about the difficult questions that you may have or the difficult experiences that you may have. And I say option number three is you can accept it. You can accept it. And you can say, I may not have all the answers, 
but I have enough answers to know that Jesus is who he claimed to be and that he is the way, the truth, and the life. And he is the one man I am meant to follow. And I am tired of trying to be good enough for God because Christianity is true that you can never be good enough for God. And I am ready to be given new life. I'm going to pray for you if you want to do that. If you want to do that, I just want you to pray. We're going to, we're going to pray. We're going to sing. You can pray to God. You can ask God. Like, like we've already seen in this text that God is after your salvation, after your joy, after your happiness, more than you are. And so he is eager to save you. He is eager to restore you. He is eager to give you the life that is truly life. And I'm going to pray for that. I'm going to pray for that, okay? So bow your heads. We're going to pray, and then we'll uh, celebrate through singing. God, we thank you for the missionary legacy of the church. And that though these truths are hard and the implications are serious, we would pursue truth rightly rather than just wanting our preferences to be true. Just because we want something to be true doesn't make it true. And God, I pray especially for those who are exploring, genuinely following Jesus for the very first time. And my prayer for them is that you would open up their hearts, that they would know that you are after their joy and their salvation in a way that they could never comprehend or understand, that your love is better than anything that they could achieve in their own lives, and that you would redeem them, restore them, and save them for your glory, and not just save them to go to heaven, but to save them into the church so they can live as a good missionary to this city and the sphere of influence that you have entrusted them with. God, do this for your glory and not for ours. God, move in this city for your glory and not for ours. And God, turn this world upside down for your glory and not for ours. We ask all these things in the powerful name of Jesus. Amen.